39 through 56 this evening. Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 56. As you recall, so far in Luke's gospel, we have considered these two announcements by the angel Gabriel. These two announcements by uh, the angel Gabriel, the first of which was to Zechariah. That, sh that his wife would give birth despite her old age, despite her barrenness. This is long-awaited John the Baptist, this prophet like that of Elijah, who would be the forerunner to the Messiah. And the second announcement was to Virgin Mary in this obscure town of Nazareth, that she would give birth, not to John the Baptist, but to the long-awaited king himself, the line of David, the line of Abraham. And now in our passage, we see that Mary and Elizabeth meet together in, in this region of Judea, of Judah. So Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 56. Hear now the word of the Lord. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. She entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, as many, as many of you know, we have entered the season which is known according to our liturgical church calendar as the season of Advent. Season of Advent is this time where the church both commemorates the first coming of Christ, but also anticipates the second coming of Christ. Now, as Reformed Christians, as a Reformed church, we unreservedly 
that Scripture alone is the ultimate authority of the Church of God. And, and thus we, we recognize that there's really only one religious holiday that binds our consciences. And that's the Lord's Day, the day in which we've gathered here this evening. However, we also acknowledge that celebrating these various seasons and days that the Church has historically celebrated according to her calendar can be helpful. It's helpful as it causes us to remember various aspects of the work of Christ. And therefore, as we indeed do celebrate this season of Advent, another helpful aspect of this season is it causes us to ask an important question. How should we respond to Jesus? Now, if the coming of Christ into this world, the incarnation, really did happen, and Christ did what he said he did. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. He rose again from the dead. This is an objective reality. This is a historical reality that needs to be reckoned with. So for those who don't know Christ, how do you respond to this? How do you respond to Jesus? And for those of us who do know Christ, trusting in Christ, will this season be another season of consumerism, of spending, of eating more than we should? How will you respond to Jesus this Advent season? As you may have anticipated by this point, our text is instructing us on this very question. How we should respond to Jesus. Now there's two main responses that we can learn from our text this evening. The response of faith and the response of praise. The response of faith and the response of praise. However... Before we consider those two responses, we need to consider the necessary precondition to be a, being able to respond positively or appropriately to Jesus. And that necessary precondition is that we need to be filled with the Spirit. We need the Spirit of God to work upon our hearts and lives before we can respond with faith or praise. Just as they say, once you start experiencing the sensation of thirst, that's a sign that dehydration has already set in. Well, in a similar way, if we are responding positively to Christ, whether it be faith or praise or in other ways, that's a sign that the Spirit's already been at work in our hearts and in our lives. Therefore, this necessary precondition is, is the work of the Spirit. We need to be filled with the Spirit of God. So let's consider the necessity of the Spirit from our passage this evening. So if you look with me in your Bibles at verses 39 through 40, we read this. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now in the previous passage, as you may recall, it ended with Gabriel telling Mary that her relative, which is Elizabeth, also conceived, despite her old age, despite her barrenness, and this was supposed to be a sign of confirmation, a sign of assurance to Mary that if God can do this in the womb of Elizabeth, can he not also cause this miraculous conception to occur in your life? And now the response, as we read here in verses 39 through 40, is for Mary to go and make haste to the household of Zachariah and Elizabeth. Now, we don't know exactly why 
Mary did this, but I think a, a likely inference is that she wanted to be mutually edified and encouraged by meeting with Elizabeth and reflecting upon how God's been at work in both of their lives. But what is of significance here that I want us to focus on is the cause of the response of both John the Baptist, again, John the Baptist is in the womb of Elizabeth at this point, the response of John the Baptist and Elizabeth. So what is the cause of their response to being in the presence of not just Mary, but also Jesus, who likely was conceived at this point? If you look with me at verses 41 through 44, as we see now the cause of, of these responses, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Again, as I, as, I just got, as I just mentioned, this baby in Elizabeth's womb is John the Baptist. And back in chapter 1, verse 15, we read that Gabriel's prophecy was that this baby would receive the Spirit while he was yet in his mother's womb. Therefore, a likely inference is that the cause of John the Baptist leaping for joy while he was still in Elizabeth's womb was the Spirit of God that came upon him in the womb. And notice that Elizabeth also is described as being filled with the Spirit. And what does she do after that happened? Well, we see that she blessed Mary for being the mother of Christ, but also she blessed Christ, the fruit of Mary's womb. So we see here that Elizabeth, John, they respond this way in faith and praise and, and rejoicing because the Spirit's working in their hearts and lives. These responses are owing to this, this work of the Spirit. Now it's important to note that the work of the Spirit is mysterious to us. John tells us that the Spirit blows as it wishes. Right? We can't manipulate the Spirit. We don't control the Spirit. This is teaching us that the Spirit is the cause of every appropriate, every positive response that we have to Jesus Himself. We are so dependent upon this work of the Spirit in our, in our lives, in our Christian lives. As I said uh, before, you know, just as, as thirst is a sign of, of dehydration, so too, if we're responding with faith and praise, all these things, this is a sign of the Spirit's at work in our life. Now, this season, the season of Advent, which gives way to Christmas, this is a time where we gather. We have the opportunity to gather with family and friends, and as a result, we also get the opportunity usually to gather with unbelieving family and friends. And as a consequence, it's a great opportunity for evangelism, as this, this whole time is about the coming of Christ and what he did. And these are objective historical realities that need to be reckoned with. As we also know, those who have not had the work of the Spirit occur in their lives, Paul says in Romans 1 that 
We are by nature those who suppress the truth, suppress the truth in unrighteousness, the truth that's known objectively to us in creation, suppressed. But this point is good news for us. Because it tells us that salvation, whether it's our salvation, whether it's the salvation of others, our unbelieving family and friends, it doesn't rest upon our own wisdom, our own goodness, our own eloquence, our own intellect, or that of our friends and family. It rests upon the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God that needs to work upon all of our hearts in order to respond to this Jesus. In fact, ever since the first sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, we all by nature are born in sin. That's what the Bible says. The Bible repeatedly refers to our identity as those who are in Adam. We are sons of Adam. This is our nature. We are sinners by nature. We are sons of Adam by nature. And therefore we have freedom, but it's freedom within the bounds of who we are, within the bounds of our nature. And sinful human beings, sons of Adam, cannot choose the good. It's not within their nature. Just as human beings are incapable of growing wings and flying, it's not in our nature to be able to do that. So we need the Spirit of God to change our nature. To change our nature, to give us eyes to see. Not only our sin and misery before God's holy law, but also Christ, His perfect righteousness, His sacrificial death. We need the Spirit of God. Well, if spirit, the Spirit is that necessary precondition to be able, being able to respond to Jesus, what is that first response the Spirit produces in our lives? Well, the first response is faith. Faith. Faith is that response that is a work of the Spirit, but also a response that we are all called to exercise. So faith is how we are to respond to Jesus. So as we consider faith as a response to Jesus, I want us to focus on Mary's faith here. Now, of course, Elizabeth is, is displaying a sort of faith as she praises Mary, as she praises Christ. But the focal point here is on Mary's faith. And I want us to, to consider, consider her faith. And we're not told explicitly in this passage that the Spirit's been at work in her life. We see that with Elizabeth and John the Baptist. But remember our previous passage. We saw that it was the Spirit of God who would overshadow Mary when it comes to the conception of this long-awaited Messiah. So I think a, a good inference is that the Spirit is and has been at work in Mary's life. Furthermore, in 1 John 5, we read that everyone who has faith has been born of God. Everyone who has faith has been born of God. I mean, it's a spirit who produces this faith. Not only in our life, but in the life of Mary, as we read about in our passage. So if you look at me at verse 45, Elizabeth is, is praising and blessing Mary, and we read this, And blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now, we believe that Luke wants us to see, to see this contrast between the faith of Mary and the faith of Zechariah. If you, if you recall, Zechariah received this, this announcement, this prophecy by the angel Gabriel, and what was his first response? It was one of doubt. 
There's not, there's not a faith. You know, his response was, come, come again? My wife, she's, she's old, she's, she's bare, she's going to do what? He responded in doubt. As a result, he was strict, stricken mute. But then Mary, right, the next passage, was also given a, a very big announcement. And yes, she was perplexed, she asked questions, but she didn't respond with doubt the way that Zechariah did. Verse 38, Behold, I am a maidservant of Christ. Let it be done to me according to your word. She responded with faith. Faith in God. Faith in Christ. That this is the Messiah who will be the Savior of the world. So what is this faith? What is this faith that, that Mary displayed here in our passage and the faith that we all are called to display? Well, first, faith is knowledge. Mary had to comprehend a certain, certain knowledge, certain information. She comprehended that what the angel Gabriel was speaking about was the long-awaited king of the line of David. As we will see in her song, she saw that this, this baby boy was of the line of Abraham. This is a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. This is God working salvation for his people. She understood, right? She understood what... Gabriel was speaking. But it's not just knowledge. Her faith isn't just knowledge. It's also affirming the truth of this knowledge. This is important. Again, we see the contrast here with Zachariah. Zachariah understood what Gabriel was saying. But this seemed way too outlandish for him. How can this be? But Mary responded by assenting to the truth of this. Let it be done to me according to your word. It's not just knowledge, it's not just affirming the truth of this knowledge, but it's also personal trust. Personal trust. Again, verse 38, notice the first person pronoun. I am a maidservant of Christ. Let it be done to me according to your word. Mary believed in this person. As our catechism says, not only for others, but to me also. Right? Christ is our salvation, our righteousness. Brothers and sisters, this is the faith that you and I are called to exercise. A faith that includes knowledge. We need to know the right things. Yes, we don't have to pass the theology exam, but it is important that we know what, who Christ is and what he came to do. It also includes not only knowing the right things, but actually believing that these are true. And there's lots of liberal Bible scholars who know much, much more than any of us in, in this room. But they don't assent the truth of these things. So we need to assent to the truth of the knowledge in which we know. And, and lastly, we, we need to personally trust this for our salvation. Right? Not just for others, but for, for you personally. Christ is your righteousness. Christ is your forgiveness. In verse 45, you, you, we also see that Mary is blessed because she believes. Mary is blessed because she believes. We see that true blessedness comes along with true faith. True blessedness comes along with true faith. Why is this the case? Well, it's because faith is that which causes us to be the recipients of the riches of Christ. It's as if, by faith, we, we now receive the treasure chest of Christ. Boys and girls, it's as if you receive this treasure chest filled with riches. 
when you believe. And what do we find in this treasure chest? Well, we find this death on the cross and the forgiveness of sin. Boys and girls, we are right nature sinful, dirty. And Christ's death on the cross has the power to cleanse us, to cleanse our sinful, dirty hearts. But that's not all that we find in that treasure chest. We find the perfect robes of Christ's righteousness. It's not enough just to stand before God naked and clean. We need to be clothed. Therefore, we find these righteous robes of Christ's righteousness. So we are clothed in his perfect merit and good works. You also find the resurrection power of Christ through the Spirit. Here we find the power to actually live lives in accordance with his law. And by faith, these riches are ours. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8 9. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Faith grants, grants us the riches of Christ, the truly blessed life, and the joy and peace of knowing that this is ours. Later in this service, we as I mentioned, the, the, the privilege of coming to the table of the Lord. And at the Lord's table, we not only remember Christ and his work for us, but we participate with the very riches of Christ himself. It's also a foretaste, a foretaste of what we're looking forward to, the final marriage supper of the Lamb, when we will enter into the fullness of our inheritance, the fullness of, of these riches, which we, we have now in part, but we will have fully in the life to come. Faith is this response that we need to have to Jesus. Faith is that which leads to truly blessed life. Isn't this a great reminder this time of year? A time of year that that is, is dominated by consumerism, by spending. Blessedness is not lying earthly riches and having enough stuff. True blessedness lies in what we have by faith. The riches of Christ, which cannot be taken away. And boys and girls, you know, this, this time of year is not chiefly about, about presents or fun activities or good food, though nothing bad about those things. This time of year is about Jesus and the riches that we have in him. So do you believe in Jesus? Are you resting in this Messiah? Don't put him off. This isn't, Jesus isn't just for a rainy day down the road. Believe upon the Lord Jesus today. Today is a day of salvation. Otherwise, you're missing out on the truly blessed life that could be yours by faith. Well, faith is that, that first response that we are to have to Jesus. We respond to Jesus with faith. But how does the person who has faith respond to Jesus? The answer to that question is praise. We are to respond to Jesus by praising him, 
by praising God. You know, just as a baby's first instinct out of the womb, when air comes into its lungs, is to cry. So too, in a similar way, the response of a believer to Jesus is to praise God. To praise God. And here again, I want us to focus upon Mary's praise of God as she responds and continues to respond to this awesome announcement of what God will do for her as she will be the, the bearer of her Lord. And here we see uh, verses 46 through uh, 55, the, the song of Mary, which we, we sung earlier in our service. And in a lot of ways, this you could call this a New Testament psalm. It really is our only New Testament psalm, and it has it's a long tradition of, of being sung as, as a hymn in the Christian church. This is the song of Mary. And we also learn a lot about how we should praise God as we consider how Mary praises God here in this passage. So first we see that, that Mary praises God for personally providing for her. Personally providing for her. In verse 48 you'll see that, that she praises God for looking upon the humble estate of her servants. She praises God for personally taking care of her. Now oftentimes when we are anxious about the future, we begin to inherently doubt. Is God going to show up? Is he going to provide? Is he going to take care of me or my loved ones with whatever it is that we are, are anxious about? In such moments, it's good for us to take time and praise God for all the ways in which he has showed up. He has taken care of us during every past season of our lives. It may not have been according to our prayers or how we would have liked him to do it, but he showed up. He took care of us. He provided body and soul for our needs. And will he not do the same with whatever it is that's on our horizon, even this evening? We are to praise God for his personal provision in our life. We also see Mary praising God for who he is. Mary praises God for who he is. In verse 49, she refers to God as the mighty one, the great one. She praises him for being the holy one. In verse 50, we read that, uh, or she praises God for his mercy, which is displayed for those who fear him from generation to generation. We see here that God is a God who works through families. Back in Genesis 17 with Abraham, God promised to Abraham that he will be a God, not only to him, but to his children for an everlasting covenant. God's a God who works from generation to generation. He works through, through families. Verse 51, Mary says that God has shown strength with his arm. Now, of course, this, we shouldn't read this literally, as if God has an arm. One thing we'll notice is that God oftentimes describes himself, or we read about God described in, in human terms. Here it's an arm. And we shouldn't take this literally. Oftentimes, God does this. He, he speaks about himself in human terms to give us some understanding of who he is. Imagine you came upon a situation where an adult is trying to explain a very complex topic 
to a three-year-old. And you are overhearing this, this exchange, I would imagine that your first response wouldn't be like, wow, to the adult, wow, wow you're, you're pretty stupid. I mean, there's a lot more that goes into that subject than what you're saying. No, that wouldn't be your response. You'd be like, oh, I get it. That adult is trying to come down to the level of a three-year-old so that there's at least some comprehension to the mind of a three-year-old. Well, in a similar way, the hidden mind of God is, is, is unknowable to us. We cannot know God as he is in himself, as mere creatures. And therefore, in order that we can have some sense of who God is, he accommodates himself to us. He condescends to us. He, he lisps, as Calvin says. He speaks baby talk to us so that we can have some understanding of who God is. And he uses categories and words and imagery that we would know to communicate something of who he is. And so we can't just impute an exact literalness to him. There's a, a distinction, a huge distinction between who we are as creatures and who God is as the creator. And therefore here, Mary is praising God's arm. That is, he's praising the fact that God's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Can do anything he wants. Brothers and sisters, we would do well. We do well to praise God for who he is. You know, how, how much of your prayers are filled with adoration, thanksgiving for who God is? Imagine most of us, or most of our prayers are, are filled with supplication. Now that's good. And we're called to offer to God our supplications. But do we also praise God for who he is in himself? We also see Mary praising God for his salvation. See this in verses 54 and 55. Mary says, And God has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to her fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. We learn here that God is a God who keeps his covenant promises. He promised to Abraham, ultimately, that Christ would come and be the Savior of his people. And Mary, Mary recognizes this. He sees the child whom he will, who she will bear as the fulfillment of prophecies in Genesis. What we see here, then, is that the Bible, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, has one plan, one message, one manner of salvation that's all found in Jesus Christ. It's amazing. I mean, there's, of course, lots of diversity, and I don't think that needs to be proven to anybody, the diversity that we find in the Scripture, but the amazing unity that we find over all of these books that we, we read in our Bible, that there's one main message, and that's salvation in Christ. Yes, the Bible teaches morality, it teaches ethics, it, it, it teaches the law of God, that's important, and that's why we read from it each Lord's Day. But ultimately, that's not what's distinctive to Christianity. Paul himself tells us that the law of God is written on the hearts of every single human being. And this is why we see remnants of the law of God in even pagan religions. Although they pervert it, they twist it because of our sinful nature, yet we still see remnants of the law of God throughout culture and society. But what's absolutely distinctive, what's unnatural to us, is this message, this gospel, Christ himself, 
his perfect righteousness, his death. The fact that we, the one who does not work, receives this free gift of salvation. And this is what Mary praises God for. Therefore, brothers and sisters, this Advent season, as we reflect on the first coming of Christ, as we also anticipate this glorious second coming of Christ, it will still happen. Let me ask you, how will you respond to Jesus? Let's pray. O Lord, may your spirit be at work in all of our hearts, producing and strengthening our faith, loosing our lips to praise your holy name. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. But we will now turn.